You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. From the beginning of the chapter, we're going to look especially at uh, verses 7 onwards to verse 13. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, sorry, this is on page 1128, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Well, I don't think Paul was very good at church stuff because he's made some huge mistakes here, hasn't he? Um, and when you read through this book, you'll see some big mistakes that he makes. For example, he, um, he kind of names people. And you don't do that in church. I mean, if I just said just now, right, um, Gloria and Annabelle and David and Keen Lee and, you know, you say, well, wait a minute, hang on. You're naming people. You, you only name people if they're sick or if they've died. Um, or if you start naming people in a positive sense, it's a disaster. Because what if you thank the people who helped and then you miss out the one person who's going to be mortally offended that they weren't thanked and they never forget it? So don't say a word. Paul, Paul wasn't like that. He wrote this letter to the Romans, which is this fantastic, as we saw last week when we began to look at it, this fantastic theological treatise, this explanation of the gospel. And Yet, when you read through the letter, you find out who it's to, and you also find that Paul made the mistake, because they tell you in theological college when you're training to be a minister, make sure you don't have friends within the congregation. Some of us are very good at achieving that particular ambition, but, you know, don't do that. You've got to be a little bit detached, because it's not fair, because there'll be people who'd be really jealous. We've got that high opinion of ourselves. Paul just didn't do that. We know who the letter to the Romans was written to. It was written to Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila and Epinitus and Mary and Andronicus and Junia, Ampelitus, Urbanus, Stasius, Apellus, the household of Aristobulus, Herodian, the household of Narcissus, Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus and his mother, Asyncritus, Phlegon, 
Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Imagine the offense that caused. Why didn't we mention our names? Philogius, Julian, Nereus, and his sister. Again, why has he mentioned my brother and not me? Olympus and all the Lord's people with them. Paul does more than that. He talks about some of the women as being his dear friends. He talks about people being fellow workers. He talks about what they did. He talks about their homes, their faithfulness, their hospitality, their hard work. He talks about their relations and their jobs, their spiritual condition, and their background. In other words, Paul is writing to real people in a real situation. And so when he says here, to those who are called to be saints, these are the people he is talking about. I think we've made a fundamental mistake often. Um, And here I'm speaking in the Scottish Presbyterian Church, maybe other churches as well. Sometimes the only people we mention are ministers or missionaries. But aren't we all, in this sense, called to be saints? He writes to Rome, to all in Rome who are loved by God. And again, it's possible because he doesn't specifically mention the church, that there wasn't one particular church, but several churches that met in people's homes. And Rome, it it would have given you a, a thrill if you lived in the first century to hear of Christians being in Rome. A bit like me um, when I hear about Christians being in Mecca or in Saudi Arabia. Or, you know, um, I love the fact that the city where the church is growing most in the whole of Europe is London. It's such an important city. Rome, which was the city that gave peace of a certain kind, to the Mediterranean world. It was the fount of law. It was the center of civilization. It was the mecca of poets and orators and artists. And at the same time, the center of every kind of idolatrous worship and greed and oppression. And Paul says, there's a church there. And he's writing this letter to them. And look what he says as he talks about the church. You are those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, you're loved by God, and you're called to be saints. Paul is writing to a largely Gentile church, and he uses the Old Testament language about Israel. Now, we again, we saw last week, and some things I will repeat just for those who weren't there, and also to remind you, because I'm not daft enough to assume that you remember every, everything, but we saw that the Jews had been expelled from Rome In the year AD 49, they were allowed to return, uh, I think about four years later, and that this letter was written probably around AD 55. And uh, the church had continued to grow, but whereas initially it may have been primarily Jewish, now it was probably primarily Gentile, and there were difficulties and troubles, which this letter goes on to address. But I love what Paul does here because he takes Old Testament language, loved by God, called to be holy, and applies it to a largely Gentile church. Now, that's the kind of um, introduction. I kind of had given this a title about being a missionary church, our missions weekend, and 
the jargon, and I hate the jargon about being a missional church, and you can have all different kinds of jargon. But I do want us to think about what it means for us to be a uh, missionary church. I grew up in a culture which was very missionary orientated because it was the Christian brethren. Um, It was uh, uh, very interesting that, for example, uh, I always thought this was strange as as a child and as a teenager. Women weren't allowed to say anything, but Two of my aunts were brethren missionaries, and they had plenty to say. Um, And it was always, you know, they'd come up and give a wee talk. And I always used to laugh at one of my aunts in particular, my aunt Sheila, who would give a wee talk about her work, and she'd always throw in a wee bit of the Bible as well, but that was okay because she was a missionary. And I always thought it was interesting as well that missionaries were always, my my aunt Sheila was in Africa. Um, But I wondered if she'd been a missionary to Cowdenbeath or something, would she have been allowed to speak? Would she even have been allowed to do that? I don't know. Uh, it, was, it was always interesting. So I grew up with that kind of idea of missionaries as being people who were incredibly brave. They were like David Livingston, and they went far away to bring the gospel to heathen people. And I think that was unfortunate because when we use the term missionary, I think some of us still maybe have that idea, you know, so we have a missions weekend, but what's that about? Or um, we're talking about the coffee morning next Saturday to help with, you know, going to Uganda or whatever. But I think we need to recapture this idea of the church, wherever it is, being a missionary church. And Operation Mobilization, uh, I have taken their prayer notes for many years, and I'm very, very encouraged by what I see and read through them. And... As I said uh, yesterday, George Verver uh, was, had, a, had a big influence on my early Christian life. I think we need to be a missionary church. And here's, I'll, t- here, I'll tell you why. I was asked last week to go and speak to a student organization. Now, it wasn't the CU. It was um, the Redeemed Church of God in Christ, their student movement. And uh, basically, nearly all Nigerians, not quite, but someone from Tanzania, I think, as well, uh, and London. Uh, and uh, I was, I loved being with them. I, I was greatly humbled by them, by their attitude and their enthusiasm and zeal for the Lord and desire to bring the gospel in this country. And part of me was a little bit ashamed that we live in a country, Scotland, which was so blessed by the Lord and we now need missionaries to come from Africa. And part of me was absolutely thrilled that these brothers and sisters are here. And they'd asked me to teach them about bringing the gospel to people in Scotland. And I, I had to say to them, guys, um, your street's ahead. You know, I can tell you a little bit about Scotland, but your street's ahead in, in, in so many ways. And it just, it just part of it was that we are, we are to be a missionary church. So we're going to look at that. We see that they're loved by God. It's not a truism. Please don't ever just take that for granted. It's a truth, as Leon Morris says, to be received with awe and wonder, the fact that you and I are loved by God. We are holy people. We are the saints. Someone will go, oh, I'm no saint. Sorry. Uh, We've got a wee membership class just now, and you ain't going to become a member in this church unless you're a saint. 
well, if you've got the popular understanding of sainthood, that doesn't make sense to you. But saint just simply means someone who is called by God, loved by God, to be his people and to be holy. Incidentally, you will never find in the New Testament the word saint. You'll find saints. You don't find, you know, like we have Saint Augustine or Saint Andrew or whatever, and someone has to be made a saint by the Vatican. We are the saints in Dundee, and we are called to be His holy people. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel, says Leviticus 19, and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter 1.15, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. We are called to be holy. That's, if, you're, if we're talking about mission and outreach and evangelism, it is, we are called to be holy. Now, what does that mean? It's, we, we haven't got all afternoon. We, it's often described in the sense of being set apart or separated, which is true, but you need to expand it a little bit further than that because it's not set apart or separated in a negative sense. It's not primarily separated from something, although that is included, we're separated from sin, but it's we are separated to someone. We are separated to God. And Paul is writing this church and he's saying to them, you are the holy ones in Rome in this million uh, population city, in this decadent city, in this glorious city. You are God's holy ones. And if you are a Christian here today and you live in this city or in the surrounding area, you don't have an option with this one. You are the holy ones. And Paul says, let's grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He just keeps piling these things on you. He's using the number six, ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. And again, we can skip by that because it's so familiar, and yet we should never forget it. The grace and peace that comes from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can be holy ones. So all of that, just that little bit there, is this wonderful privileges of what it is to be a church and be involved in the Lord's work. And then in verse 9, we come to something that some of you will have and others will need to think about. He says, first of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. I love the way, by the way, he says first, and you can go through the whole rooms and he never comes to second. So, you know, I just, I, 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 that makes me really love Paul because that's how, that's what I do. I write articles that go, uh, first, point number one, this, and I might get secondly, but I rarely get thirdly, fourthly, fifthly, or whatever, because you just kind of get carried away or you forget the numbers or whatever. And I love the fact that that's how Paul writes. Or it may be due to the fact that he was not writing this, but dictating it to a secretary, and we know his secretary's name. His secretary's name was Tertius. But anyway, he says first, and he says, I'm, I am so glad about you because they had a great reputation. The spread of the gospel in Rome was news, and it was a source of encouragement to believers throughout the world. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.8, the Lord's message rang out 
from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Like we heard Peter telling us of Egypt and Iran and other places, it does cause rejoicing. Colossians 1 verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Now, there is a false reporting of the effects of the gospel. It often comes from people like televangelists who are wanting you to give money and they want to boast about the work that they are doing. Paul doesn't do this. What's Paul boasting about? He's boasting about a church he's never been to. And he's saying, your faith is reported all over the world. This is great. This is just fantastic. It's nothing to do with him, in a way. He's so thankful for the Lord's work. And that is one advantage of taking a prayerful interest in what God is doing in other parts of the world. Operation World is fantastic. We use that and we pray through it. Um, using the OM prayer notes or the IFES prayer notes or other things, just getting good, reliable information. Now, not the rubbish information. I'm fed up. Uh, maybe you don't get this, but every week I get um, requests from people who are running orphanages in India or Africa to give them money. And the church has started to get them here as well. And the answer is no. But we do hear about God's work going on in different places and it, it is really quite extraordinary. I mean, sometimes it's better that the world in general doesn't hear. I mean, what would happen if it was widely publicized that there are probably a million Iranians, Muslims, who've become Christians over the past while? You know, really, we need to, knowing that in the church is good, but, you know, you don't necessarily provoke a whole bunch of maybe persecution and trouble. But it's good for us to have a prayerful interest. But I think also it's good for us to be thankful for other Christians and for what God is doing in them. And to, to be thankful when we hear of things occurring in other places that are not our church. And I'm sorry, but I do think this is a Scottish characteristic. I think well, there are many fine Scottish characteristics, but this is a negative one. And those of you who are Scottish will understand this. It's that we can't his father approach. Andy Murray, ah, he can play tennis, but we can't his father or his mother, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, it's kind of a put down. And we're very good at putting people down. Oh, well, we know about their background. We know about this. We know about that. And I think Paul's attitude is one of, I can't his father, because he spoke Scots as well. He says, you know, I can't his father, but his father, their father, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, you're believers. Isn't it just great that you are believers in the midst of the Roman Empire? There are times when he almost jokingly, perhaps, boasts about it. When he talks about, for example, in the Praetorian Guard, there are believers. There are believers everywhere. And I love the fact that in the garbage village in Egypt, there are so many people who became believers Christian love manifests itself in this, that it rejoices at every good thing it sees in others, especially at their spiritual blessings and thanks God for them. Maybe I'll, I'll bring this a wee bit closer to home. 
When did you last sit down or stand up or walk around and pray to the Lord and thank Him for Christians in this church whom the Lord is prospering and blessing or who you've been helped through or whatever? I hope we do. I hope we're thankful for the Lord's people. Then on to verse 9 and 10. (coughs) We read this. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. See, Paul preaches the gospel, but for Paul, preaching and prayer go together. He's saying to the Romans, I've not been able to come and preach to you yet, but I do pray for you. Most are, pro- most are unknown to him personally, but he intercedes for them constantly and at all times. Your Christian prayer life is incredibly shallow if it's about you, if it doesn't include intercession for other people. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And Paul doesn't just say, I pray for you. You know, you meet, like I meet Peter just now and say, oh, Peter, I, I pray for you. Well, I would be lying if I said that. I haven't prayed for P- Peter very much, but now that he's been here, it might provoke me to pray for him more. It will provoke me to pray for him more. But we can do it so simply, oh, I'll pray for you. And then we don't do it. Paul almost takes an oath. Look what he says. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness. God is my witness. How constantly I remember you. This is not Paul saying, well, I'll pray for you. He's saying he does pray for them. And here I have a problem with us. Because we like preaching in this church. But what use is the preaching without prayer? And you might say, well, you know, you're not going to say I don't have time to pray because you know that that's wrong. But you'll find a way to say it in a way that doesn't say it. Because that's the way that we are. And I'm saying to you, we, we ask for volunteers for rotas, right? That's fine. We need rotas for creche and all this kind of stuff. That's great and it's fantastic. But before you do rotas, you need to be praying as a Christian. And you need to be praying with other Christians. Because I'm sorry, you're not that holy that you can just go away and do it on your own. You need to be with other believers and you need to pray. And whether it's on a Wednesday or a Thursday, if you pray together, whether you meet in prayer triplets, I mean, Sunday morning... What better preparation could there be for the worship of God than going to the prayer meeting? And I'm looking forward to the day when that wee room, we have to say, sorry, we can't meet in there because there isn't enough room for prayer. Because that's how you prepare for prayer. The work of the elders is to lead in prayer. They devote themselves to the work of prayer. And we need to think about that. I need to think about it. I'm personally incredibly convicted about this because I feel that in some ways, and forgive me if this sounds arrogant, I don't want it to sound arrogant at all. I feel that, and I'm I'm speaking to other people preaching as well, I feel that we've got good teaching in this church, but I'm wondering about the prayer, and I'm wondering about this. Can I honestly say, I swear to God that I pray for you constantly? Well, not if I do five minutes prayer a day. I can't be saying that to people. That's just, just be a lie. So, I, I, I mean, I'm, in, I'm intrigued 
And I'm fascinated by this. And this language that he uses, because it ties in here. He says, whom I serve with my whole heart. Now, I, I think that that's a wrong translation because he says, whom I serve in my spirit. And it, because he speaks of the Holy Spirit and so on later, I think it connects better in that way. It, is, it doesn't mean wholeheartedly, but what he's saying is this. He's saying, he's saying, not that I'm enthusiastic. That's When we say with my whole heart, that's often what we mean. What he's saying is, this goes right into my inner being, and I serve God in my inner being. And you can, as I say, you can preach, you can lead praise, you can, you can do many different things in the church, you can teach in the Sunday school, you can do all different kinds of things. But just by doing those things, it doesn't mean that you serve God in your spirit, in your inner being. And that's where the, I think that prayer comes from, and I think where the passion comes from. And I think for Paul, he's not just doing a job. He's not preaching because that's what he's paid to do, or that's his reputation. He's, he's preaching and praying because he really believes it. He loves Jesus, and he wants to share it. That's why, again, he says it's the gospel of his son. I serve the gospel of God's son, the good news of God's son. And maybe you're going to look at me and just say, that's not fair. You're just having a goal. But I'm not. I'm looking in a mirror. Honestly, I'm looking in a mirror. And I'm saying, how can I pray? Why don't I pray? Not even the, the quantity. I'm not even particularly about that. But that should be our priority. And we need to repent as a church. And, and really get back to, to prayer now. I'm not talking about boasting about prayer. I'm not t- there's, there's a whole loads of traps and ifs and buts and all the rest of it. But prayer privately, prayer in our homes, prayer with our friends, and prayer together as a church. Can I just offer this as one basic guideline? If you're a Christian, we have the membership class, and you're a member in this church, then one of the things I would, I would say to all members, there's <laughs> several things I would say, but one is this. You need to be in corporate prayer with other brothers and sisters from your own church at least once a week. Now, we offer Sunday morning. Maybe that doesn't work for you. Saturday morning, between 8 and 10, maybe that doesn't work for you. Fine. Come and tell me. We'll do a lunchtime. We'll, come, we'll, 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 we'll find something that people get together and pray. There is nothing more refreshing than a prayer meeting. Nothing more refreshing than a genuine prayer meeting. Notice Paul had a particular prayer. He wanted to be able to come to them. And there's something about how we pray. Paul doesn't do the name it and claim it. Lord, I just believe you for a thousand people in Dundee to become believers. Or I believe you that I'm going to get healed. Or I believe you that this... No, you don't believe God because God never said that to you. You're trying to twist God's arm. You have a wrong understanding of what prayer is. Paul says, my longing is to come to you and I'm the apostle to the Gentiles and you're the Gentile capital and of course God would want me to come and so therefore I'm going to come to you. And he doesn't say that. It's a humble and a tentative prayer. He does not impose his will on God and he does not claim to know God's will. He submits his will to God. I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Just a very important lesson in prayer. Maybe lastly, we'll finish off <coughs> looking at the last verses we read, verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Maybe some felt offended that Paul hadn't been to them yet. Um, and he says, look, it's not the lack of desire, it's the lack of opportunity. Perhaps because of the ban on Jews. Perhaps more likely, I think, because of the evangelistic work he still had to do in Greece. But he had this long, deep longing to go, why? Okay. Um, and again, I don't mean to offend people, but sometimes we can have a longing to go on mission and we can talk about mission and outreach and so on and we can go for the wrong reasons. We have a desire to go and visit people or churches for the wrong reasons or superficial reasons. Haven't been to Rome yet. Let me get that off my bucket list. Or Africa or Asia. I've experienced people saying, I want to come and minister in Scotland. Why? Because God has given me a burden and a love for the people of Scotland. And yet when you ask them, they don't know any people in Scotland. They haven't been praying for the people in Scotland. They're in love with an illusion, with Brigadoon and Braveheart and bagpipes and golf at St. Andrews and images of Scotland and the Scottish people. They don't know the Scottish people, don't know the churches. They like the idea of ministry. I've got to a stage now when people say that. Okay. Are you prepared to come and go to Cowdenbeath and Kilmarnock? With no offense to people from Cowdenbeath and Kilmarnock, by the way. All right. Or Dundee, even. It's funny how God calls everyone to Edinburgh and St. Andrews, and to London and to Amsterdam and to Milan. It's funny that. And I don't believe it. And I know the theory if we go to the center and the capitals and all the rest of it, then we'll reach the rest of the country. That's not how the Bible worked. Jesus came from Nazareth. You know, I mean, we, I don't know, we have this idea about mission that we're going to go and do something and we're going to be great and um, uh, we know that we sh we, we're not going to say that. And we know how to be humble, falsely humble. But too often we go and do things because it's about what we can get and what we can, I mean, I've had mission, people writing and saying, I want support for my mission work because I feel this will help fulfill me. And it goes straight in the bin. Because that's not why we do mission. And let me add one other thing here. A number of years ago, the highways, what was called the Highways and Byways Mission in the Free Church went through a phase where we were swamped with people who volunteered. And especially, um, there was also a, a, a work called Eastern Europe for Christ. And we decided to make a rule, a basic rule, that if someone hadn't done mission in their local church, or gone to the highways and byways, we wouldn't sponsor them to go to Eastern Europe for Christ. Why? Because it seemed very glamorous to go and help orphans in Romania, but if you can't help people in your own community, how, how can you say you've got a heart for mission? See, I think what happens is if you do mission at home, you'll do mission abroad. But I think sometimes we've got this, that's mission. And I think sometimes the rest of us in the church, that suits us, doesn't it? because we can put missionaries on a pedestal like I did with my Aunt Sheila and my Uncle John, who were just ordinary Christians. Because in that sense, you could argue that we're all missionaries. Luther points out about this, that Paul wants them, not what they have. And I think that's really important. 
Paul wants them to know Jesus. He doesn't want what they've got. And Paul comes and he wants to give them a spiritual gift. I think tied in with this harvest. He, he wants to come and evangelize in order that there would be more converts for the church. He, 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 that's all that Paul wants to do. That's his driving passion. Now, look what he does. This is brilliant. Verse 12, I hadn't noticed this, and I've read Romans so many times, and I'd never noticed this, because Paul says, I long to come and give you some spiritual gift. And then it's like he backs off and says, hang on a minute. Uh, I want you to realize I'm not talking about me coming and giving you something. We are going to be mutually encouraged so that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. See, you get missionaries or pastors who go to a place and they, they have the attitude, I'm coming to bless you. I'm coming to give you this. But Paul says, I want to come so that I can get encouragement. And can I say this about this congregation and this fellowship? I love coming here every Sunday, and not because I love hearing my own voice, and not even, I mean, I love preaching and all the rest of it, but I love the encouragement that comes from us being together. It's fantastic. It's really tremendous and encouraging, so much so that when you get the wee discouraging bits, that's fine, you can cope, you know, because that's just the way we are as human beings. But it's a mutual encouragement, and that, by the way, is a huge motivation about why we come together to worship. You come tonight... And it's not about what or what you can receive. It's the mutual encouragement. That's why in, in the writer to the Hebrews says, let's not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And he wants a harvest. He wants to bear fruit. He wants to reap. Now, um, I know the text that Peter's going to preach on this evening. And basically, I'm going to have to stop because time's gone. So he's going to do part two of this sermon, and, and, and I knew he would about what the, that mission actually is, but that's what Paul is wanting to do. So I'll just finish up with a conclusion and let Peter carry on this evening. Maybe God is calling you to serve him in mission work in other countries and in other places. I joke about people like um, Jenny and Neil uh, going away, and it's terrible, you've left us, and and others who, do, who go and, and, you know, doing um, those of you who are junior doctors and you've got your assignment, and it's not in Scotland. Terrible. But you're going to Wales, that's fine. You're going to Northern Ireland. They need missionaries too. And we're sending you there as missionaries. That's what I want to happen in this church. I want this church to have a constant flow through of people who are being taught God's word and who go out to share it <coughs> everywhere. And it may be that God is challenging you and asking you to think about what you're going to do with your life. But as you work that out, let me suggest this to you. You have to begin here and now. You don't put it as a career path. I'm going to become a missionary or I'm going to do this. I'm going to become a preacher. You have to do it here and now. Peter, at 14 years old, 12, 14 years old, whatever. That's how you learn and evangelism and so on. I ask just simply, are you thankful? Are you praying? Are you involved in the Lord's work here and now? Because if you can't do it here, you won't be able to do it anywhere else. And if you can do it here, you'll be able to do it anywhere else. Because right now, this is where God has called you. And when you say, ah, but when I'm finished my degree, or when this happens, or when that occurs, then I'll get involved. Who are you? Your life is but a mist. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow never mind, in two or three years' time. This is where God has called you now. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
is here in Dundee, in the church. We are loved by God. We are called to be holy. We are called to grow as a church. We are to pray and to preach and to tell and to gossip the gospel. We are to live such holy lives among the pagans that they glorify God. And here's something that with a false sense of humility, we say we don't want ever to happen. And you're wrong if you say this. Oh, we don't want people to talk about us. We don't want people to praise us. No. Paul says, I'm delighted at you Romans. Your, your faith is spoken of all over the world. Do believers throughout this city, this country, this world praise God because of us? Not praise us. That's right. They don't praise us. But they praise God because of us. It's not humility to say, we don't want people to know what God is doing. I mean, who do we think we are? We, of course, we want people to know what God is doing. Calvin, in talking about this passage, says, there's a here a rich truth presents itself to us, to us, which I shall briefly refer and leave it to be meditated upon each individual. Paul does by no means ascribe the praise of our salvation to ourselves, but derives it altogether from the fountain of God's free and paternal love towards us. For he makes this the first thing, God loves us. And what is the cause of his love except his own goodness alone? On this depends our calling, by which in his own time he seals his adoption to those whom he had free, before freely chosen. Now, just bear with me just to unpack it just a little bit. God's free and paternal, God's free and fatherly love towards us. This is the first thing. God loves us. And why does he love you? Why does he love you? Does God love you because you're good? Does God love you because of your parents? Does God love you because of your country and your race or anything? No. God loves you purely and simply because of his own goodness. And do you know what that means? It means when all the other reasons you think he might love you are gone, his love can't be taken away because he didn't love you for those reasons in the first place. He loves you out of his own sheer goodness. And that rich truth, truth which Calvin says, you know, we meditate upon, causes us, I, I hope it causes us to be just incredibly moved, but not just moved so that we feel it emotionally, but that that feeling leads to action, that we want to share that love with other people, and we rejoice at seeing God's love working amongst other people, and that we reflect that love of God, because then we're really going to get the mutual encouragement, mutually encouraged by each other's faith. We're too easy to put each other down. We're too easy to justify our own sinfulness and self-absorption by attributing them to other people. We're too easy, to, we find it too easy to forget the love of God and the graciousness and the beauty of our gods. I think that if we understood the gospel better, mission would not be a problem because couldn't, we couldn't help, couldn't help it. We just want people to know and to share. We can learn this from Paul. We can learn this from Romans. We can learn it from Christian brothers and sisters elsewhere. And we can thank the Lord 
that he is merciful to us. We do serve a great God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and just this incredible word that you sent through your servant Paul to this group of people in Rome almost 2,000 years ago. And thank you that it's a word to us in Dundee. And Lord, it's a word of rebuke because we confess we are not as thankful and as prayerful and as passionate as we read of here. And sometimes we are not Barnabas, sons of encouragement or daughters of encouragement. We are those who discourage and put down. And Lord, forgive us for that. And Lord, grant that you would cause us to have a spirit of prayer in ourselves as we meet together, as we worship. And I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, that even as they hear of this great good news and wonder what it's all about, that they would know that it's all about you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that everyone here would know you and love you and serve you in your name. Amen. Well, speaking of meditating on that love, we're going to sing um, the hymn, O Love, That Will Not Let Me Go. And we're going to sing it for a change, the traditional tune. Uh, O Love, That Will Not Let Me Go, I Rest My Weary Soul in Thee. Let's stand and sing it, and then please remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.